Okay, here we go, here we go. 20 Sundays after Pentecost, here we go. Welcome. All right, let's pray and let's go. Know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Matthew 9, 6. Almighty and merciful God, for thy mercy's sake, keep far from us all that oppose thee, that unhindered in body and soul we may serve thee with hearts set free. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Okay, uh, great to see you. For, there's nothing new to be handed out, but does anybody need, uh, anybody need, the, need a handout still? The single handout I've got left? I made another 75, so I thought I'd be in good shape. Anybody need one? I actually would, would be joy and be happy to give it to you. <laughs> Great. <laughs> You're very, there you go. Um, I know a couple of things about this class, okay? Uh, I know, as you discovered last week, that everything in my brain is attached to everything else when it comes to theology. So there was the plaintive cry of, where in the world are you on this outline? <laughs> I get that, you know. Uh, now, there's a reason for that. It's because in theology, one of the, and this is something to be proud of as Lutherans, uh, things pretty well fit together, and we don't, when they don't fit together, we don't shave off the edges. We just say, well, the Lord didn't, didn't, didn't fit that piece together for us yet. So I understand that, you know, I, 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 am, uh, I can be what appears to be tangential. However, I hope that uh, it's still connected. So if you, you know, if I float away, you all pull me back, which then brings me to the second thing, which is, um, I know it's a big space, and I know it's difficult. I mean, I know it's not a small space. This is just the way we're staffed right now, and this is the way we'll go forward for some time. Um, you know, probably most of this calendar year, I presume, or most of this, you know, most of this church year, I presume. So it is what it is, and uh, it's sort of the best we can do. Now, for you, uh, that just means you need to screw up the courage to send me an email or even raise your voice in this great big group, and that would be good. So... Let me see if I can say what I said a little bit about last week and then go on. If you would turn to 1 Peter 1, okay? And I, you know, honestly, I don't know whether, you know, my other, I, and you who haven't been with me before, you know that I think it is the greatest crime to bore you. And so if you seem like you're anywhere near boredom, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to move on. I'm going to step on the gas because that's a, to waste this kind of time. This time is so valuable. I, I understand how valuable your time is. I'm grateful that you come. I understand the commitment. I also understand how much this means to the life of the church here. Uh, you know, it just is the bottom line. If people aren't reading the scriptures and exposed to the means of grace, churches die. It's that simple. So, and when church people gather and do learn, they have a common, they have a common ground for going forward as the church in everything that they do. So I'm very grateful you're here. I understand how important this is. Um, this is as important as anything that happens here. Uh, so please, please, uh, you know, sort of stay with it. The first letter of Peter, and uh, just the first 13 verses, I'm just going to kind of, I just want to get it in your head. From Peter, apostle of Jesus Christ, to those of God's scattered people who lodge for a while in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, chosen of old in the purpose of God the Father, hallowed to his service by the Spirit, and consecrated with the sprinkled blood of Jesus Christ. Grace and peace to you in fullest measure. And now, I'm only going to interrupt once as I read this, this from, from where I start to where I stop is one sentence. 
So it's important for you to kind of, kind of get that because that shows you how interconnected all this is. This is one sentence from 3 through 12. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who in his great mercy gave us new birth into a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The inheritance to which we are born is one that nothing can destroy or spoil or wither. It is kept for you in heaven, and you, because you put your faith in God, are under the protection of his power until salvation comes. The salvation which is even now in readiness and will be revealed at the end of time, this is cause for great joy. Even though now you smart for a little while, if need be, under trials of many kinds, even as gold passes through the assayer's fire, and more precious than perishable gold is faith which has stood the test. These trials come your way so that your faith may prove itself worthy of all praise, glory, and honor. When Christ is revealed, you have not seen him, yet you love him, and trusting in him now, without seeing him, you are transported with a joy too great for words while you reap the harvest of your faith, that is, salvation for your souls, this salvation was the theme which the prophets pondered and explored. Those who prophesied about the grace of God awaiting you. They tried to find out what was the time and what the circumstances to which the Spirit of God in them pointed, foretelling the sufferings in store for Christ and the splendors to follow. And it was disclosed to them that the matter they treated was not for their time but for yours, and now it has been openly announced to you through the preachers who brought you the gospel in the power of the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. These are things that angels long to see into, period. Now I pose the question for you. I am going to work with the outline. So if you've got it, I am starting right at the top, okay? I pose the question to you the way Peter himself poses it to them in a second letter a little bit later. What kind of people ought you to be, holy and godly, as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming? So you people, this is a letter to church people, you people, the question is, everybody knows you're church people. If you, you, you couldn't pull that sentence apart that single sentence, that is, that is a whole semester of study at the seminary, that single sentence. I mean, that's everything you need to know about salvation. You could not pull that apart if you were not church people. But then the question is for church people, what sort of people are you to be? Because you know in the church there's all sorts of people. I'm one of them, so are you. And sometimes, you know, we're in better and worse about being church people. So, you know, what sort of persons ought you to be? What does it mean to be holy and, and godly? And you know that every year, now, six, for six years, we're not doing so much this year, maybe externally, but every year, we have, you know, talked very crisply about what it means to be a Christian in this place. You know, we've talked about Christ and Scripture and prayer and the divine service and giving and mercy and witness. We talk about that Every year we've talked about that. That's, that's sort of a shorthand way of talking about what it means to be holy and godly. 
as you, and this is very important, I'm still at point number one, the number, the number one, as you look forward out there somewhere to the day of God and you speed its coming. And I don't know if you've ever considered your responsibility in bringing the last day. The rabbis used to say, if every, if every Jew prayed at the same time, the world would stop and time would end. That's a question for you. What is your responsibility toward the final day, and what is your responsibility to speed its coming? What's your place in the church? That's the question. What's your place in life? And I suggest to you in the rest of what's written in point number one that there are two things that are debilitating for the Christian life. One of them is hopelessness. When you sort of curl up in a ball and are good for nothing. But I will suggest to you that in the church, what is much more common, it is still a sign, or a form is better to say, of hopelessness, is the old uh, 80-20 rule in churches, where you got 20% of the people doing 80% of the work and 80% of the people kind of wandering around doing not too much. That is a debilitating issue for any church and it is an actually anti-Christ. It is anti-last day. It is anti-speeding the coming. It is anti-what it means to be baptized. It is anti-everything. You're going to see that in a second when he talks about full blast grace and peace to you. In the church, we understand that people are newer Christians and older Christians, less mature and more mature. But the point is, at whatever level you are at, that you are firing on all cylinders, with whatever gifts God has given you, you are speeding the coming of the last day, that you are looking forward and ready to greet that. That is what hope is. It is to be oriented toward the return of Christ. It is to live in the expectation of that, despite the present circumstances. Now, all of that is, is, you know, sort of pulled in uh, just at the beginning. Who are you to be? And what are you supposed to be? And what are you good for? And all those parents who, like me, as their kids went to homecoming last night, said, remember who you are. You know, we're not like other people. We don't look like other people. We don't talk like other people. We don't act like other people. Remember who you are. And the answer, of course, to that is that you are the baptized. So um, the, this really is, this really is a sermon given at the baptism, uh, I'm convinced of this, given at the baptism of new catechumens, people who have been trained in the faith for some long measure of time, a couple of years, and it may even be, you can press the point, it may even be that this is a sermon for baptism at Easter Sunday, or more properly in the early church, Easter Vigil. It may be already there. It may be that what Peter is doing here is telling people who have just been baptized to remember who they are. Sit down, pay attention. This is the life that you've been drawn into, okay? Now, the thing that's glorious and also a bit shameful for us 
is the level of theological sophistication with which these very new members of the church operate. It tells us something about our own time when we do not draw people into this sort of rich, thick, dense theology. So for you who have been around forever, it is very important for you, one great homework assignment for you who are not going through this for the first time would be to figure out a way that you could give a witness from 1 Peter, that you would be able to say to anyone you meet, this is what Christianity is all about. And it lies, you know, it lies before you here. Okay? This is what's, what's going to happen. He's saying what you wish you could say to your kids. He's saying what you wish you could say to your spouse. He's saying what you should say to your next-door neighbor who doesn't come to church. It's lonely driving to church at you know, 6.45 or 7 in the morning. It is, uh, you know, it's about a two-minute ride from the Arrowhead Golf Course here. There is nobody out, not even the police. Not that I would go faster than is posted on the sign. I'm going to church, but, you know, where is everybody? Yeah, I should look at Dunkin' Donuts. Thank you, I'll swing by next time. That's right, they're bound to be there. You, you don't refer to the police, you refer to the neighbors, I'm sure, because, you know, this is broadcast and it could be on the police frequency for all you know. So, uh, they'll never know who you are, Dan Kovic. Dan Kovic. <laughs> Why isn't everybody else in church? Come on. Well, because you and I haven't given him a good reason. Okay, so here's your good reason. From Peter, apostle of Jesus Christ. So you're getting a direct line. We did this last week. You're getting a direct line. I've moved then to point number three on the outline, okay? As you turn, I just observed there, um, for you who are our adult converts, or you who came to the faith later, or you who perhaps were baptized and then you were completely fallen during your sort of uh, however long your spiritual adolescence took and now have come back. One of the difficulties for other Christians who maybe got baptized and then haven't missed a Sunday at church in 70 years, one of the difficulties for Christians like that is, to, is, is that they can't understand you. People who have been baptized and never missed a, a Sunday for 50 or 60 years uh, often can't see what all the fuss is about when a new person comes in and they understand how horrible their life was. And then they understand how much they've been forgiven. And then they just can't stop talking about it. They can't stop learning about it. They can't stop letting it be the dominant factor in their lives. Very difficult uh, for churches where you have a big established membership to be welcoming to people who are, are brand new. But one of the marks of a really mature church, and I mean spiritually mature, in the most positive sense is, that they are ready to welcome people not into the bare minimum, but into the full wealth of conviction, the full life of Christ, as Colossians 2 says. Okay? And if you could kind of remember what that was like, those days when you really needed it and you got it, you would be in the proper frame of mind to read this. You would be at Easter Vigil in Pontus or somewhere else in Asia Minor. You would be hearing what you've been drawn out of and what you've been drawn into. So 
So Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, the straight stuff, seeing Jesus face to face. And then this great first indication that you're dealing with the baptismal sermon is you get a great Trinitarian invocation. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, just like we do here. Do you believe in God the Father? Yes, I believe in God the Father. Do you believe in God the Son? Yes, I believe in God the Son. Then you say what you believe. That's exactly what happens here. Chosen of old by God the Father, hallowed to his service by the Spirit, consecrated with the sprinkled blood of Jesus Christ. That is exactly what we say, that God our Maker has destined us to be back in Eden with him, that we can't come to Christ except by the Holy Spirit who speaks God's word to us, and that it is the blood of Christ which saves us, but that blood needs to be applied to you. And of course, then you're thinking, how does that happen? And one answer is baptism, Romans chapter 6. If it happened to Jesus, it happened to you. That is the great theme of Easter Vigil. Okay? And just an aside, I'll just sort of toss this in. I, I mused a bit about the possibility of persecutions and when this was written. You know, Nero is firing up at 64, 65 A.D. Peter dies round about them. It's possible that Peter wrote this as those persecutions were breaking out. There were also scattered, localized persecutions around that didn't make as much news. Great example is Saul having authority and being at least a blind eye turned when he persecuted Christians round about Jerusalem and then farther. Okay. So that's one possibility of talking about being scattered, why they were scattered possibly. It is persecution. I'm going to give you another, though. This is almost a direct quote from Leviticus 25, 23, where the Lord says, after the exodus, you are my people, strangers and sojourners in a strange land. He says this even though he's bringing them to the promised land. You are my people. You are strange wanderers in a land that is not your own. It's Leviticus 25, 23. They would have known that. They would have been taught that. They would have been taught that the preeminent story for them coming to baptism was the Exodus. In the early church, when they wanted to teach people about what was going on, they taught them the Exodus story, that people who were nothing were by the miracle of God brought through water and made something. They were brought through water and brought to a promised land. You were not a people, now you are a people. By the time we get to 1 Peter 2, he's talking about a holy nation and a royal priesthood. In Egypt, they were nothing. In the promised land, they were everything. How did that happen? And the answer is through your baptism, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So what's happening probably is you're watching Easter Vigil go on. You're watching people who've been brought to the font, you're listening to the stories just like we listen to the stories. They say to all the people gathered, these stories are your stories, and what happened to them happened to you, and what happened to Jesus on the cross happened to you. How did that happen? At the will of the Father, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now see, that's all jammed into two verses. That's all in two verses. To us, it just sounds like, hey, how's it going? But for them... This is the difference between life and death. These are people who were scattered and lost and persecuted and nothing. And those people are now something 
In fact, they have a future, they have a hope, and they have a promise for the last day. You should be able to say that to the people that you bump into. When people say, why do you go to church? The answer is, because I'm dead if I don't. And that's the God-honest truth, because I'm dead if I don't. I, so I should speak more clearly, I'm sorry. Why do you go to church? Because if I don't, I'm dead. If I don't, I'm nothing. If I don't, I'm lost. If I don't, I'm hopeless. If I don't, the last day is going to be a bitter thing. It's not so hard to do evangelism work. You give testimony to the faith in you. What are you doing here? You understand somewhere deep down that you were lost, nothing, and you now understand that through Christ and the application of his grace to you, you are something. Which is, you know, even for your high school and college kids, a good way to start with them. Because they're all trying to find their way too. It's not so difficult, nor is it so different. So then, grace and peace to you, which you, you get. The ultimate grace is the mercy of Christ from the cross. And the ultimate peace is the peace of Eden. The, your Jewish friends know this as shalom. And when they say that to you, there's a hopefulness. They don't just mean, I hope you're having a good day. What they mean is, I pray the blessings of the promised land on you. You check with your Jewish friends. See what they mean when they say that. It's not just sort of, hey, how you doing? This peace is the place where God is God and his people are his people and everything works. Which now, you who've been around for a while, you should say, hmm, that should be the way it should be at St. John. That is a template for the church on earth. So you should be asking yourself, you who've been around for a while, you should be asking yourself, where's my place? And how can I make this work? And to whom do I owe authority? And what about those under my authority? And how can I care for folks and draw them into the full life that's given here? How does God intend for Eden to work? That should be an easy uh, ancillary question for everything that happens here. Grace and peace, and you'll notice that the text is very careful to say, in fullest measure. Because it's always full blast or nothing in the church. It's an all or none game, friends. It is an all or none game. There's no bit by bit, there's no halfway. It is in fullest measure. And so again, thoughtfulness about your own life. Is it grace and peace at the fullest measure? This drives people, of course, automatically to repentance. It would have driven these people who heard this to repentance. It also would have it would have drawn them into rejoicing about the forgiveness that was given to them in their baptism. And likely in the early church, likely in the early church, as we do with adults here, they would have gone directly from baptism to the Holy Supper, and they would have seen the intimate connection between those two things, that you are baptized toward the Supper, and it is from the Supper that you are nourished and that you live. Why do you go to the Supper? Because if I don't, I'm dead. Why do you get baptized? Because if I don't, I'm dead. Why do you hear the word? Because if I don't, I'm dead. Why are you in the church? Because if I don't, I'm dead. You can remember that. You can say that. It's right there in the text. Now, verse 3, and um, 3, 4, 5 is where I'm going here. You okay? Anything? Questions about anything? I know that the way that I proceed, um, you know, I, it's been observed that I'm a bit tightly wound sometimes, and I... Uh, you know, I know that the way that I proceed, you know, but 
there's a rigor to do in this where things need to be tightly wound. You, you know, only as tightly wound as Jesus himself and what he delivers. I mean, this is a glorious package of stuff that's being delivered to you in every facet. This is great stuff. But if you, if you need to shout out, you know, go ahead. It's, it's all right. You okay? Anything? All right. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who in his great mercy gave us new birth into a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Just verse 3. Okay, now what's going on in there? You always have to ask yourself, what would they have heard? And they, uh, they would have heard, they would have heard something you don't hear. They would have heard anagenesis. And they would have known couple of things. Uh, they, that's, they would have heard, it's the word for birth. It's also the word for new birth. It is also the word for the son begotten of the father. And they would have figured out that they'd heard about this before with Jesus and Nicodemus. When they said this, what they would have thought is, oh, that's the Jesus and Nicodemus story. That's a story about being born again. I'm always surprised at Lutherans that they stutter at the point of uh, when somebody asks them if they're born again. Uh, you know, the answer is, well, of course. Of course, the rest of the answer is, but I don't mean what you mean. But don't say that part. <laughs> I mean, the answer is, of course you've been born again. Okay, now just go, go left in your Bible. Go left about an inch to John 3. We should just have a look at it. Because this is what they would have heard. They would have heard, oh yeah, they taught me the story about Jesus and Nicodemus. John 3, just a really quick look at that. Okay. You know this story. Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night. Maybe he's scared. Maybe that's when rabbis teach. Maybe it's both. Maybe it's the only time he can get an appointment. Okay, John 3. Nicodemus comes to Jesus. Nicodemus is a smart guy. He's he's top-level guy. He's in the Sanhedrin. So he comes to Jesus at night and says, you're a smart guy, help me out. Verse 3. In reply, Jesus declares, I tell you the truth, unless a man is born again. Now here's the trick. It doesn't actually say born again there. It actually says, unless a man is born from above. Ding, 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 ding. And now you should be hearing, oh yeah, that was the Father who chose me and the Spirit who hallowed me into the death of Jesus Christ. That was all happening above you somewhere, outside time, from forever. Okay, that's the chosen word. Unless somebody is born from above, it's a bit bit of a loose translation this early in this text to say born again. Unless anybody is born from above, They're dead, to which all these people would have said, who'd just been baptized, well, we just got born from above, or we're we're just going to be born from above. It's not clear whether the sermon is before or after the actual act, but what they would have heard is, oh, yeah, that's us. Jesus is talking about me. This is my story. Now, you can imagine how great it is. The Exodus story is their story. Now the Nicodemus story is their story. In a minute, the baptism story is going to be their story. 
And now the last day story is going to be their story. Why do, they, why do they do this? Because these stories are your stories. When you hear these stories read in church on Sunday, you should understand these stories are your stories from forever. Okay, and then I just want to clear up the one other mistake. We'll do this someday when we do John 10 years from now. But the other big mistake that people always make is um, when Jesus says, uh, well, oh, then verse 4, how can a man be born when he's old? Surely he can't crawl into his mommy's womb again to be born. Verse 5, Jesus, I tell you the truth, unless a man is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And the Greek is very careful there to have, then it, now it uses uh, the genethe word, born, unless a man is born, and then X, one preposition for the next two parts. So there's not a baptism of water and then a second baptism of the Spirit. Jesus doesn't say that, and it doesn't say that anyplace else in the Scriptures either. What it says is you're baptized one thing of water and the Spirit, like your piano has black keys and white keys, but you've just got one piano. You got it? It's two parts of one thing. And that is what it is to be born again. When Nicodemus says, how can I crawl back into my mommy's tummy? Jesus says, you knucklehead. This is water and spirit talk. Okay? You okay with that? There's just one baptism, and it comes with water and spirit. Now, back to 1 Peter. That's what they would have heard when he says, praise be to God the Father. This is the Father. How can I get, that's Nicodemus' question. How do I get to know the Father? Praise be to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who in his great mercy gave us a new birth. And so that was Nicodemus' question. How do I get a new birth? How do I get born again? How am I born from above? How do I get out of this life which is going to be, as 2 Peter said, dissolved in fire on the last day? How do I survive that? And the answer is, you get new birth into a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. So I am at then, at um, point, the end of point six. Well, let's just read point six so that I've proved he actually wrote it. Um, God the Father reborn us. I didn't know how else to verb it. God the Father reborn us into a living hope through Jesus' resurrection. That is a tremendous amount of theology packed right in there. My hope would be that you would slow down long enough to learn that. That you understand, A, the Father does the work. And when, when people argue that baptism is our work, there's nothing that you can do except feel sorry for them. All over the text, it's God himself who does the verb. Father does the verb, Son does the verb, Spirit does the verb. It is not our work. There's no place where it says it's our work. It's the Lord's work. That's the first thing you say. The Father reborn us, born us again, born us from above, birthed us over again, gave us a fresh start. But it's deeper than that. It is changed us. The Father reborn us, and then, uh, you know, this is point seven, and you're sick of hearing me say this, but he born us into, which is a preposition of motion. 
That, when you have into, it means that you move from one place to another. So you're here in your trespasses and sins, dead like a doornail, and in the birthing process, he moves you over here. Or better, he moves you up there. Or you're, you're out there and you're dead, and then you go through Easter Vigil and you're baptized, and the Holy Spirit goes to work at the Father's will, giving you Jesus' gifts, so he picks you up by the nape of the neck and he brings you in here. It's a preposition of motion, into. And then, code word for baptism becomes, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. So you were out there, you were brought into Christ, and now you're in Christ. It is the Father's work by the Spirit, delivering the Son. You should be able to say that. You should be able to talk so easily about that that God wanted you from forever, that when it all went bad, his Holy Spirit yearned for you, prayed for you with sighs too deep for words. That's how Romans talks. And the only way for you to be brought back within is to have the mercy and benefit of Christ applied to you in baptism and then reapplied to you constantly throughout your life in supper and absolution in preached word and read word through the means of grace. That's what's going on here. Okay? God does it. And when he does it, it's good stuff. Um, I think I told you the first funeral I ever preached, I preached about capital letters. I think I've told you this story. The first person I ever, uh, whoever, I was at my, at my, uh, at my ordination, I think, I think I told you about it, it was, there were several unique things about it. One, it was on the feast day of the beheading of John the Baptist, unbeknownst to me. Uh, <laughs> second is, right at the point where they put hands on me, there was a lightning storm and the lights went out. So that was weird. Then uh, a woman carrying sandwiches had a stroke and fell down the stairs, um, heading for the basement. So I never actually went to the thing. I actually went, I was ordained and then went to the hospital, made a hospital call. Um, and then when I was there was Jenny Turner, who was dying of breast cancer. Um, you know, as long as I was there and the day was, you know, gone in a different direction. Um, there I met Jenny Turner, who was, um, had been second grade teacher in town for uh, 40, 50 years. As she, as she uh, lay dying, in the bed next to her was one of her students who repeatedly told her how much she meant to her. Glorious stuff. Um, her funeral sermon was about capital letters. Of course, you know, being a teacher, she could tell the difference between big letters and little letters, which, of course, is, is very important for all of you because at your baptism, you die to the big letter death. That's where you have your big death. And then beyond that, everything else is uh, lowercase. You, know, you die again, but the, but the heavy lifting is over. Um, we're not going to get there today, but one of the important things to see as you go forward is very, it's very interesting. In the early church, um, they were much better at Easter weekend than we are. In the early church, they were able to, to hold together the suffering, death, and resurrection of Christ is one thing. Now, we've tried to restore that here by speaking of the triduum, the great three holy days, and we've tried to, to, to sort of wind things together from Monday, Thursday to Good Friday. But that's, it's really an uphill battle in American culture. American culture 
loves a victory. American culture loves to be on top. American culture loves joy without suffering. In the early church, they were well aware that it was through the suffering, with the suffering of Jesus Christ into the tomb, and then through the pangs of hell and out again, that that was one bundle. And in just a minute, before we get out of this chapter, St. Peter's going to talk he, he talks so brilliantly about baptism and the gift that's been given. You were dead, and now you're alive. You were outside, and now you're inside. And that's what the Father did to you. He talks about that joy. Do you know that in 1 Peter, it talks more about suffering than any other book of the Bible. This little, this little book references suffering more times even than Paul's epistles. It's remarkable stuff. Why is that? Because he wanted these people, these sojourners, these strangers, these who are scattered, God's people, but scattered nonetheless, to be able to understand how to hold in tension suffering and joy. So you might have heard on the news last week, um, as uh, I, I, there was a guy on the news interviewed in New Orleans who said, uh, I just don't get it. Everybody here on my block is church people. In all the strip clubs, and all the, all the French Quarter, all the, all the gamble places, everything else is opened up. They're all dry and going again. But we're church people. We go to church. I don't see why we're getting punished. What's the presupposition there? Well, if you're Christians, you just get, you know, you get a free pass. Everything's good. You're fine. First Peter's just the opposite. You know what? You're a Christian. You know what's going to happen? You're going to be miserable a lot. You know why? Because you are at odds with the universe. I, I went through, um, it, was, it was sort of second commandment point uh, with the confirmation kids on Wednesday, and we sort of run through, especially um, demon possession and witchcraft. And I think they're shocked, as many Christians are often shocked, to remember that this world belongs to Satan. This isn't a big secret, but we should sort of pay attention to it in the midst of our joy about what happens over. The fall, one, one part of the fall meant that the world belongs to Satan. One part of the fall means that you're not always simul justus, not always justified. You're also simul peccator. You are always sinful. And C.S. Lewis was brilliant on this point. He said, you know, he said, uh, uh, Satan is like, is like the, the Nazis taking over Europe, and Jesus is like the French resistance, just trying to make an inroad toward a day when life will return. It's very difficult to, for us to remember. And that then should, that should be a double impetus for you in this place, in this church, not to be evil. Not to add to the burden of evil in the world. Not to be evil to each other. Because you're playing, you're playing the cards uh, you know, of, another, of another suit. That's not us. This place, you know, this place is meant to be a place where people can come, understand their suffering, and be consoled, not be tortured. Nobody wants a place where their church fights. Nobody wants a place where their church is always on edge. Nobody wants that. That's not why people come. They come here to be nourished in the gifts of Christ because this is an alternative to what's out there. 
They come because they've been drawn to grace and they expect to have it full blast and they should because that's what the Lord is here to deliver. Grace and peace to you in fullest measure, which means for all of you and for pastors and for teachers and for staff, get out of the way because the Lord has got business he needs to do. And while pastors and teachers and staff can be helpful in that, and lay leaders and governing board types and elders, they can all be helpful in that. The other side of the coin is they can bollocks it up, get out of the way, and let the Lord do his business. That's the reason pastors wear vestments. They're getting out of the way. Most All you need to know is, is hands and mouth. That's all they need to do to deliver. Get out of the way and then be able to say positively, what joy means. And at, the, at base, it means you've been rescued out of a world that's gone straight to hell and drawn into a place that is holy and godly, and now you are in Christ. You should learn to be able to say that. You should be able to say to people, why do I go to church? Because that's deadly and this is life. And when you're here, and when you're out there too, but particularly when you're here, you all should live that way, and I should too. That's what the church is. That's what it's meant to be. So I got to uh, one less verse than I got to last week. <laughs> proud, of, proud of that, particularly. Um, but, you know, it is what it is. So uh, too fast last week, too slow perhaps this week. Next week, um, and I, I don't do this lightly, you know, I give up this hour. I, I, I lust for this hour, or 45 minutes with you. Um, but I really think this guy, Bird, who's coming, he is, he is one of the next bright boys. He's, he's the next, you know, he's the next level of guys that we should pay attention to. Now, I was thinking about you all. You're a little bit jaded sometimes. You get, uh, you know, the people that walk through these doors, you get Mummy, and you get Burkholz, and you get Gainig, and you get Peyton, you get, you know, you get Stellwagen, and you get, you get all these guys who are the next generation top of the heap guys. And I, I, sometimes I fear for you because you get, a little bit, you get a little bit used to the quality of the guys who are walking through the doors here. So when I say this to you, I feel like maybe it doesn't have enough punch for you. Bird is the next, he's one of the guys at the next big level. He's, he's doing a remarkable thing. He's a Christian doing an Old Testament degree at a Jewish university. And that's you know, just one very interesting thing. And two is, the students love him. And three is, people seem to love him too. There's all kinds of guys at the seminary that, that the students love and people hate. Uh, that's, that's easy to do. Uh, what's hard to do is to have students love you and regular people love you. And that's the, that's the, uh, you know, that's the, that's the pre-seminar buzz for Saturday that we've gotten back. So um, seminar on Saturday, and then he'll be here at this spot next uh, Sunday. I don't do that lightly, but I do it when uh, it's time to step aside, when there are guys who've got a lot to deliver. So sign up if you can. Come along and uh, keep them in your prayers. and, and uh, if you could just sort of keep reading through First Peter, that would be a good thing. Okay, let's pray and let's go. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Thanks. See you next week.